Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Benjamin J. Butler. He's an Asia-based futurist, a writer and a speaker. He left England 20 years ago and has been on the road ever since, accumulating a unique international perspective to advise leaders on where the world might be heading. He's a member of the faculty of Future IO, the European Institute of Technologies and Desirable Futures. He's a member of the Global Future Council on Computing at the World Economic Forum and is a futurist with the UN's Resilience Frontiers Initiative. Given the richness and the variation of Benjamin's CV, we asked him to introduce himself. Welcome to the show, Benjamin. Tell us about yourself. Well, uh, I have a somewhat eclectic background, uh, at least in the last 10 years. Uh, but uh, by profession, I, I started off in um, in investment, um, basically oscillating between uh, primarily in the hedge fund industry, but oscillating between investment banks and, and hedge funds. Um, ended up in uh, venture capital. Um, I kind of wanted to be involved in building businesses uh, as well. So um, that, that sort of t- led me to California. Silicon Valley, um, uh, a lot of investments actually in Southern California, LA, before it sort of turned into Silicon Beach. So we were sort of ahead of the curve a little bit. Um, And then all these seemingly disparate things I was doing in in my life. At at one point, I was teaching creativity at a design school. I was writing Dow Theory letters with um, Richard Russell. Uh, on financial trends. I was still involved in some venture capital investment um, and doing public talks. Dow theory letters. So you obviously have a technical aspect to your analysis. Uh, Well, I, a little bit, yes, uh, I guess to to answer the question, um, but not, not so much now. I mean, I'm, I'm not looking at financial markets every, every day anymore. So I'm sort of not, um, necessarily familiar with all, all the, the the charts but um yeah i mean i, I i've i've always sort of believed that a, you know a picture can tell a, a thousand words and we we get such we it's, it, i think we're i mean western civilization now is very much an intellectual civilization and we we can get stuck in our minds um and i think charts cut through that and um it, it's interesting. I mean, the, the other dimension to my past is is the last, I, I guess, because I, I learned Japanese 20 years ago. <laughs> so you were uh, definitely ahead of the curve there. Well, did you have a spare five minutes with just nothing to do? Uh, yeah, I had, I had a few of those. <laughs> I had a few of those. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm kind of jumping around a bit. But uh, Zen has been a big part of my life as well, just to throw that that in there. It was it was sort of quietly in the background in my financial career and then very much part of my last last 10 years so anyway i had all these sort of seemingly disparate things going on in my life and people around me thought i'd lost the plot on different occasions and then then it all came together when i started calling myself a futurist and and like schopenhauer said uh, a good few years before steve jobs that um you know, life doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, always makes sense um, looking forwards, but uh, 
makes a lot of sense when you look back. And it sort of all came together then why I was so fascinated by creating the future as they do in Silicon Valley in California and all these macro trends, mega trends, my interest in technology and, and my interest in the human mind and, and how the mind and the imagination functioned. You said earlier um, that you had some experience in teaching creativity. Can creativity be taught? Yeah, well, I, I actually don't think it can be taught, but this is kind of... It, the can, be nur- it can be nurtured, perhaps, or encouraged. Well, it, it can be rekindled, I think. So what the, the creativity studies... Because kids are creative, aren't they? Kids are naturally creative. Uh, absolutely. In fact, our, our, so the academic studies suggest that our creativity peaks, peaks around seven years old, 10 at the latest, uh, and that's... Certainly been downhill for me ever since. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, most adults... Uh, your jokes have, have stayed the same, though, haven't they, Tim? <laughs> yeah, well, they've, they've, they've had a kind of timeless quality to them for the last 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, yeah, uh, it, it peaks so early because that's when adults get involved. Yeah. So formal education um, is the sort of beginning of the end of, of one's creativity. And I think that's changing. You know, people are looking at education in different ways now. And Well, off, off qual certainly are. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about regulatory uh, bodies uh, leading the way. Well, so, sorry, sorry to sort of you know, go on off on this tangent, but it, I keep coming back, and I think Paul will, will, will echo this sentiment. That's not mixing too many metaphors. Um, one of the most intriguing things I've heard from the guests we've had on the, the podcast over the last two years is from a gentleman by Jürgen Hulsman, who's a professor at, in, a, I think, a French um, university, but he teaches economics. And when we, and he's off, very much of the Austrian or classical economic school, and when we asked him what he would most change about the system, or certainly I was expecting him to say something about you know, the monetary system or, or money creation or central banking or something along those lines, because obviously at the end of the day, this podcast has a sort of a base level, which is to do with you know, finance and, and the markets. And his response was, get, get government out of the education business. And in the light of recent events, the, the, the fundamental you know, merit of that, of that I, what I thought at the time was a slightly strange perspective, is just completely relevant all of a sudden. Government shouldn't be allowed near anything. <laughs> Apart from streetlights. They're allowed to do street lighting. Let yeah, they, they seem yeah. to do that okay. And I was in, in the park in uh, Hackney this morning, and they seem to, to be cleaning up the park okay. Um, okay, street street the... lighting and street cleaning. We'll... Yeah. But apart mean, from that, what are we going to let the government do for us? Yeah, very very little. I, I guess I'm a libertarian at, at heart as, as well. And, um, yeah, it, it's fascinating. I mean, parts of, um, yeah, I mean, wherever I see government not functioning, I see I see creativity. Um, but I, th- I think the dam has broken on education. I mean, there's so much, um, there was already so much happening online with different forms of education. And now, you know, with COVID-19 and the acceleration of, of the use of the internet, you know, my futurist friends in Silicon Valley would call it the, the acceleration of uh, atoms to bits. Um, you need, the dam's broken. I mean, does, this, does that mean that you're ultimately, that one of your takes is going to be that COVID will end up being a positive force in some respects? 
I think so, yeah. Um, and you know, that comes with sort of my Zen mind mindset of of non non duality. Every time you think something's bad, it often is quite a good thing. Mm. Like like the the late Sun San, who was a Zen teacher in South Korea and opened Zen centers all around the world, would say in his sort of Yoda like fashion. Uh, a, a good situation is a bad situation and a bad situation is a good situation. Mm. Um, and it's always good to remind oneself of that when you're going through challenging times. But I, I, I think short, short to medium term, it's a total nightmare. And mm. um, I'm sure as you've been saying uh, that the government uh, has completely mishandled it in many countries around the world. But I think longer term, we, you know, Western civilization is living in between stories, as I like mm. to say. We, we had an old story and there was no future vision uh, where we were heading, um, unfortunately, even though it was entirely conceivable. But how would you define the old stories? The old story of the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, the Industrial Revolution and, and, the, and, and the post, you know, de- democracy, capitalism and all the great institutions that were set up in uh, post post second world war um and now including the european union well maybe yeah i mean i think that's fragmenting i I, i'm not sure whether that's gonna going to last but maybe that was one of them um but um did you have a i mean again sorry to interrupt did you have a, a perspective on brexit um yeah um i mean i i thought so, I, I mean, I take non-ideological positions on everything, which I think was one of the gifts of starting my career in in investment, um, although I know there are a lot of investment professionals with dogmatic uh, opinions, but I was always sort of taught by my early mentors to, to, to not take ideological positions. Again, it fits in with a very Zen approach to the world. Um, just look at, look at reality, look at what's emerging with, without, um, the, these sort of big concepts. Well, the the, pr- the price is the price is the price, and everything else is a narrative, essentially. Yeah, yeah, and it's really, really quite amazing. Um, um, it's funny as I've gone into. I will answer your question, by yeah. the way. But as I've gone into other after quitting finance full time, and I I started to get involved in all these different industries. What was sorry again? I, I do apologise for sort of cutting in. What what drove that? Did you get bored with finance? Disillusioned? Just wanted to do something more interesting or in or stimulating? Yeah, it, it was. So the intellectual interest never left me. Yeah. Um, I I love the fact that it's one career where you you have an excuse to really be nosy about absolutely everything and and i'd always say to my friends that weren't in the industry look that there's almost not a book that's not relevant mm. to, to my career um and travel i, I mean I, I i loved uh jim rogers books where he sauntered around the world and as much as possible i'd incorporate travel and, and speaking to real people uh not just other investors and mm. and 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 policy makers but everyday folk and that just gave me a, a great richness to, to what I was doing but I think it was a lack of in my case a lack of purpose mm. um, so yeah the interest never disappeared but I, I wanted to have um, uh, more of an impact on the world 
And, and I still believe that, you know, you can have a, a noble purpose in any career, you know, um, even a lawyer, for example, could could have a, a noble purpose to help help their clients. And I, and I think, you know, what you do as fund managers is really important because people need to uh, retire, although I'm not sure with the current financial system, uh, anyone can retire anymore, but um, mm. unless you're part of the billionaire class. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just wanted a, a deeper purpose. And um, so, uh, but the interest never lost me. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and with, with Brexit, um, I just, I took a non-ideological position, I guess, um, if pushed, I would say uh, bef- b- before the referendum, which I, I believed, um, and, and I was on public record as saying that Brexit would, would go through, um, um, I tried not to make too much of a noise, but when push came to shove, I'd say it was probably a good thing. Mm. Um, because my natural inclination is as a libertarian, I don't like red tape. Um, the EU was looking increasingly like a super state and, uh, and not really democratic the, the way that the processes worked. Um, and I thought it could unleash a, a sort of a wave of creativity in, in the UK. Um, but also from my, I guess my startup career, informed me um that every not everything but a lot is in the in the implementation of a decision and un, unfortunately um the decision was made many years ago and 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 we've just spent years fight you know bickering over 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 the decision rather than moving mm. into implementation so i mean if you took a good silicon valley entrepreneur or businessman and and said the board of directors has decided we're going to do course A, not B. They'd stop bickering about course B, and they'd get out there and be creative. And mm. when I looked at the UK, the, the day after Brexit, um, just to give the audience some context, I hadn't lived in the UK for many years. In fact, uh, I've just spent the longest period in the UK for twenty over twenty years, and my my a lot of my career has been oscillating between Asia and the United States. And so unlike some Brits, I, I'm not really afraid of the US. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I've not spent my weekends flying over to Berlin and hanging out in parts of the, the European Union. And, 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 and I'm not afraid of the US. I mean, they do a lot of things. They do some things badly. Um, I'm not a big fan of the foreign policy and the empire building of the US, but um, but technology and and the, the US Constitution. I I studied law at university. I have huge respect for the the the, the, the American Constitution, and um, so I wasn't really afraid afraid of the US, and um, I, I thought that um, it could just unleash such a wave of of creativity. Um, oh yeah, and so when the day of the day after Brexit, I was just so surprised at my social media feed as mm. to how negative my friends, British friends, were about the UK. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, they're, they're just a little bit upset about about a decision. They'll get over it. But then it carried on for a year, two years, three years, mm. uh, and it got quite tiring. And and I I the the within a week of Brexit, I, I sat down and uh, and looked at some of the data and thought, well, you know, what's the, what's the, 
if I was an investor just looking at the UK, what what's what what are, what, what are the underlying assets? Uh, and it just blew my mind where London ranked, where the UK ranked on so many different surveys from, you know, being the, you know, the, the, the de facto financial center of, of Europe and the world, perhaps mm. the design center, the, um, the, the, um, capital, capital in so many different things. Mm. Deep, deep mind came out of the UK. You know, this was the biggest news in artificial intelligence in, in the last, since the turn of the century and kicked off a wave of investment all around, around the world and why the Chinese today has, have sunk so much money in, in it. So I just went through a list of things and I thought, oh my God, um, I almost felt like moving back to the UK and uh, and standing for parliament myself because <laughs> I was so tired with all the negativity. Then I realized that I didn't really want to join the political class. Mm. So, I mean, that's, that's part, sorry, sorry, but it's part of the problem, isn't it? That I remember when we had, um, when Money Week or, or South Bank Research had a, um, a an annual conference uh, a couple of years ago, they had Daniel Hannan as one of the guest speakers. And Daniel Hannan, for those who don't know him, is one of the, the actual founding fathers of, of, of the whole Brexit process. He was sort of leave in his bones from his sort of student years. And he's also a very competent speaker, very a very, a very, uh, just, just, oh, just a fantastic speaker, fantastic public speaker. Anyhow, so he gave a sort of forty-five minute um, presentation without notes, which was, which was superb. And then afterwards, some of us, some of the people involved in the event, sort of just to sort of lobbied him in, uh, on the way out and said, "Look, Dan, why don't you stand for Parliament?" And he, I think, basically, he said something along the lines of, "You would have to be completely insane to want to be an MP." That's the problem. Who in their right minds would do it? So the country's calling out, crying out for for leadership, uh, of which there seems to be nil at the moment. And you know, never was there a case of sort of cometh the hour, cometh the man. So it's very sad. It it is, and and occasionally I I have this sort of insane thought that what if I just did it as an ex experiment? So and and like I think a lot of the 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 biggest breakthroughs in one life if you just kind of do it as an experiment and don't take it too seriously mm. well it certainly seems to be what boris johnson's doing yeah <laughs> that's right well uh you know it was entertaining for a while uh, mm. I, I think many of us had had some hopes uh, for him but uh you know the the other thing about brexit is, is on a quite on a, on a sort of a macro view i i believe that the way the way humankind needs to organize its affairs, you know, if we, if we are going to avoid an extinction event and, and I'm a quite a positive futurist, although mm. it's kind of funny how many um, uh, existential risk think tanks appeared at the turn of the century and seem to be going up and up. Um, but, you know, I, I think we will overcome all our, our, our crises, but the way we're going to do that is actually through, uh, mimicking nature mm. more and more because nature is incredibly efficient, dynamic. You know, the impulse of evolution is for for more and more creativity, dynamism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the the evolutionary impulse is always for self organization and decentralization. And and so, if you look at what could be the new um, the new big story for humanity, it could be a more decentralized uh, ecological uh, world and and if you look at the forefront of so many different technologies and schools of thought, 
um, you'll usually find a decentralized answer to all of them. So the future of finance could be um, a blockchain, for example. And uh, if you look at organizational theory at the cutting edge of organizational development theory, um, we're moving from an industrial mindset to a more self-organizing system mindset where it's less hierarchical. Uh, If you look at manufacturing, the future of manufacturing, um, people don't talk about this uh, enough, but for the first time since we've been making tools, um, it, it's, we're building uh, manufacturing inside out. So mm. instead of chopping up, you know, like when, in, in the Stone Age when we're chopping bits off uh, uh, rock and we're left with uh, the tool at the end. Now it's additive. Yeah, ad- additive, yeah. Yeah. Ex- exactly. And so like I go through everything and it, it's all pointing that way. And, so the idea of a super state like the EU, does that really have a place in in in, in the bigger trends that, that are happening? So it, it just really doesn't surprise me that you have more devolution uh, movements uh, around the world, you know, like Catalonia and, of course, I guess Scotland might might make a, a comeback. But certainly the, the EU didn't really fit in with that big picture. Um, view of the world that I had. It's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a product of the immediate post-war, isn't it? It's a very kind of like Cold War concept, the idea that you can only survive if you're a, a big block of affiliated nations. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's all sorts of restrictions outside the zone. And again, we're, we're always somewhat informed, you know, however, however many books you read, you're always informed by your, your own experience and having had front row seats of, of watching the emergence of China and, and Asia in the last couple of decades. Um, I, I just look, I just thought the opportunities for the UK could, could well be India, China and, and, and Asia. And I mean, Asia definitely is not just China as Parakana who wrote the future is Asian um, sort of emphasizes it in his in his book, um, I saw the the opportunities there, and in, in the U.S. Of course, it's having a a, a, a bit of a shake up at the moment, but uh, I kind of think they'll they'll have their their comeback. Ho- hopefully, it'll be uh, with a reassessment of of empire and foreign policy. But um, there, there's so many countries to trade with and to work with, and uh, and giving up on the EU doesn't mean giving up relationships with European partners. Um, it just means a, a country that could think a bit bigger. There's a, a documentary I, I saw last week, uh, this last week, called Fear City, which is a story on, I saw it on Netflix, and it was a story of how the, the FBI managed to crack down on the five families of the mafia in the New York in the 1980s, um, which is, I suppose, mildly interesting. Um, but what I took away from it probably is more, more of a, a metaphorical value. My um, colleague at South Bank Research, Dan Denning, who's one of the best writers I know, um, has referred to this as the modern five families. So, you know, in, in New York, you had these five mafiosi, Italian-linked you know, families that controlled effectively everything. They had a, f- a finger in every pie and they were sort of skimming off 
you know, skimming off the top. And he, he, his comparison now is that the modern, the latter day five families are Washington, Wall Street, big tech, media, and the military. Um, and I, what, what do you what do you say to that that thesis? That's fascinating. Uh, um, I, I think there's probably some credibility in that. Um, I, I, I think people are, are quite dynamic and creative and. Uh, I was, I mean, my mind was blown when I, some data was sent to me years ago about some cities that, uh, or countries that didn't have government and, and how, how much creativity, um, occurred, but what, what were the five? Was- yeah. So, so Washington, uh, i.e. the political class, Wall Street, i.e. the financial class, big tech, so Silicon Valley, media and the military because i'm now i've just been writing about this you know for a south bank piece and i started off with the eisenhower uh, speech on on when when he left office about the military industrial complex and i mean I, I don't i should read more about eisenhower but eisenhower comes across like basically a thoroughly good egg as far as i can tell he's the only person who actually served in the military or a general more to, to speak so who actually got elected uh, president in the 20th century, so he, in other words, he knew whereof he spoke. Um, and back then, so we're talking the 50s, it was it was military and industrial. But now, I think most people who are who are concerned about the future would probably would probably would probably um, wheel in the Silicon Valley as well, because the concerns I have relate primarily to things like freedom of speech and uh, and massive trust. That I mean, I spend far too much time for my own good on something like Twitter, but I'm also well aware that Twitter is not exactly uh, un. Uh, uh, unmediated free speech because they clearly have they they have their own views and you know that all of all of big tech is is dancing a sort of slightly strange waltz at the moment because on the one hand the the new media platforms don't want to be seen as publishers because that gives them liability for what gets published on their platform but at the same time they're perfectly happy to intervene and basically you know cancel stuff they don't like so it's a fascinating evolution it's yeah the the cancel culture and what big tech is doing is is it's quite frightening um uh, old authoritarian regimes they would burn the books but now um, one can be deleted at a click um yeah i, I mean i i think uh, big tech i mean I, I sent out a linkedin post just in the run up to our call and i was it it, it blew my mind that 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 uh, 20% of the s&p was was dominated by uh, the big the fangs yeah yeah first time in 42 years well apple apple's become the first two trillion dollar company amazing yeah how much apple stock is up over the last year it's up over 120 percent, and that's already the largest company in the world yeah i mean the the covid kind of accelerate it's meant to turn in a corner on some trends but it's just accelerated some of the older trends but i think it it also brings them to sort of a, a crescendo. I mean, ultimately, I, I don't believe in ten years' time. I mean, if you look, if you look at the, the the, the market capitalizations, the sort of the, the top market capitalizations at every decade, and you go back over the last fifty to hundred years, it it always blows my mind how much it changes. So mm-hmm. when 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 people, I mean, in the run up to oh seven oh eight crisis, it was all. What finance and oil and gas, mm. and um, and now here we are with um, just big tech, and in ten years, um, many of them might not even exist. And Warren, and Warren Buffett's even, or, or at least Berkshire Hathaway's, bought gold stocks. Yeah, well, I, I think that's very sensible, uh, given what I think's in 
in the pipeline. Um, and yeah, I, I wouldn't be adding to positions in, in big tech. Um, one, one of the top um, uh, analysts uh, in, um, uh, in California that's been writing about tech forever, I've, I've forgotten his name now. Um, it's not Hickey, is it? No, no, he's, he's really good as well. Um, no, there's another gentleman that wrote a book, Life After Google. Gilder, George Gilder. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he he he, he thinks the future is decentralized as well, and sort of predicts the end of end of Google and and the big tech. I mean, I was talking to, um, you know, the next version of the internet, um, Web three point zero. Um, my friends describe it uh, as the spatial web, and wrote a book about it. Dan Mapes. Uh, he's the founder of Versus.io, but uh, I was talking to him for a couple of hours last week, and uh, uh, he, he doesn't really see much of a place for the current big tech companies in this new in this new world. And, and by, by spatial web, they mean as the web goes from you know two dimensions from two dimensions to to three dimensions, where you know you have a convergence of God knows how many key technologies but everything from virtual reality augmented reality with um five and six g with advanced artificial intelligence sensors um edge computing uh, bitcoin i mean all of these technologies are necessary for the internet to go fully three-dimensional which means it's unleashed from screens so the internet comes into our world and, and, and is linked to the things around us. Or, or we go into a virtual reality and, and we immerse ourselves in, in the web. And, and of course, a whole new, you know, with such a massive paradigm shift, whole new companies will uh, emerge and, and old players will lose their, lose their power. So, you know, Google search was the search for the two-dimensional web. It, it won't be the, the search engine for the three-dimensional web. Just a quick question on edge computing. I've no, never heard that term before. What does that mean? Is that quantum? No, no, it's not. No, it, it's it's more about... Um, uh, Is that software as a service? You, you, well, using compute, um, com, uh, local computers, that, that enables more decentralization of right okay. of, of, of the internet. Quantum computing is like um, quantum computing is like um, what uh, the transport industry would be. You know, the the shift from from horses to to cars and and to the Boeing seven four seven and then to space intergalactic space travel. Um, my, a friend of mine that's CEO, one of the big quantum computing companies in the world, um, thinks it's that's just such a, a major shift and will enable all sorts of simulations that we just can't do today. So it will be revolutionary in bio, you know, biotech simulation, um, maybe climate change models. Um, um, the, the big thing and the reason why the intelligence agencies are all so fascinated by it is because of communication. Um, if with quantum uh, communication, um, NSA and wouldn't be able to break into your into your communication, which is why the Chinese are developing it uh, so quickly uh, at, at the moment. But, I, I always um, thought that they would develop 
quantum computing, whoever it is, but not tell anybody because you could basically, you basically got the keys to everything. Um, and if you, so you have such an advantage for a while, you can use it um, as a massive power. And wouldn't you also have to rethink cryptocurrencies in that environment because they, they would become um, obsolete? Yeah, I mean, this, this is, yeah, this is what's being spoken about in some circles. But I mean, the quantum computing is still, although Google made a big announcement uh, last year, I mean, we're still, we're still quite far out um, before. How far would you say finger in the air? But in the air, but you are a futurist. So it's, I guess it's a fair enough question. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. Um, well, in the next five to 10 years, it will start touching our lives more and more. Um, and, and of course, what you said about um, keeping it under wraps is entirely true. So it's, it's uh, you know, I, I know some of the, the CEOs of, of companies that are d- developing this, but I, I, I'd not, I have no idea what's really happening behind closed doors in, you know, in, in, with the U.S. military and, and of course, with the Chinese. But um, I, I think there's, there's a lot of practical hurdles that need to be overcome before they um, – they raise the qubits high enough for, for them to have practical uh, advantages. But, but you know, with quantum, you know, you, using quantum computing to break codes, you can have quantum encryption to protect codes. So it does work both ways. Yes, yes. But like you say, whoever gets it first has a tremendous advantage. Um, yeah, I mean... And five to ten years isn't that long. I mean, that that... If, if we're talking about new currencies here, um, I mean, it will just change. So in, our, in five to 10 years, everything could change completely. Like the whole landscape of technology is going to change absolutely because it is a, it, it would be the biggest change, like you say, since I guess the, the, the arrival of, of computers in the first place. It's, it's such a big shift. Uh, you mean with quantum computing? Yes. I well, I I think spatial the spatial computing, spatial web's going to hit. It is going to we we'll fill that in our lives first, um, because that's been bubbling for a lot a lot longer. Quantum computing is going to take a bit more a bit more time. I mean, I I actually sit on the Global Future Council of Quantum Computing at the World Economic Forum, and um, we we. Just you can find it on my LinkedIn, but you yeah. can see a, re- a brief report we put out with a, a couple of punchy forecasts uh, in it. But like Y2K, the the, the report suggests um, companies are going to have to start investing in protecting their systems. But I, I, I think with with some time out, I, I think if if I if I was advising fund managers, um, investors, and and regular folk, what you know what areas of tech to study so that they they keep abreast of things. I'd probably be telling them to look at the spatial web first. If you were looking to invest, though, you'd probably be tempted to turn to the likes of Google, Apple, or, or um, I suppose even Facebook because they're developing technologies um, in the background and in the foreground. Yeah, well, it, um, you mean like quantum and quantum um, and AI and, and everything else? Yeah, I mean it's a trade-off, isn't it? Like their core businesses um, could be uh, very much challenged in the new paradigm, um, but their say side investments, like Facebook invested in Oculus, um, these things could could certainly pay off. 
But the core business, I think, is going to come under a huge amount of pressure. Because there is this trickle down, isn't there, with technology? They're at the cutting edge. But then once it's developed, normal companies can benefit from the technology by developing it themselves and having it themselves. It's a bit like in the old days, you would have a dealing room and those dealing rooms would be in a bank. But then if you go to an oil company, a big oil company, they have their own dealing room. And so the technology moves from the pioneers, if you like, and then, then goes, other companies will say, well, why don't we just have our own? And, and then it's, they don't need to go to Google. So I, I think there will be some, some big trickle down technology um, happening, which would very much fit in with the idea that these technology companies are maturing, but it could also benefit, you know, the traditional companies, which was really an idea that uh, Akhil Patel was talking about um, on our uh, on our last podcast. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's not all going to come from these big tech companies anyway. I mean, mm. um, there are plenty of quantum computing companies that are in stealth mode, um, being backed by big venture capitalists like Peter Thiel. Um, and they're not, they, they will not take money from the likes of Google, that they want to, um, they want to go the whole way themselves, and they've got venture capitalists backing them. So it's not all going to come from the big, big, big tech. Um, but then the trickle down, I totally concur with, um, if you just think of the spatial web, uh, there's going to be a period of time where there's just so much low hanging fruit to, to, to harness the, the technology. I mean, just like Bezos um, realized that just putting books online could be a, a huge business opportunity. There's going to be so much low-hanging fruit for for this spatial web, virtual reality or augmented reality. Um, and people, yeah, people are not really, um, it's, it's still a small world. You know, when you only have a couple of million people in the world that have the interface, virtual reality or augmented reality interfaces, um, it's it's um it's it's like we're in the I don't know nineteen nine yeah I mean it's pre dot com bubble territory so um there there'll be a time where any company that starts doing virtual reality stuff will will see a lot of interest. You mentioned bubble and you you referred earlier to you know valuations in in tech big tech do you do you have a, a view on let's say the current state of the financial markets in terms of the stability or, 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 or potential lack thereof across equity markets, bonds, interest rates, you know, the, the, the big macro um, story at the moment and, and potentially, you know, inflationary pressure, which is presumably one reason why Berkshire started to dip its toe, toe into the gold market. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I think we've just been in this casino since the last financial crisis and, I, I understand since the GFC why anyone might have called the end of the the market at any any moment, but central banks have obviously kept kept the show on the road. Just kept it going, and and you know the and then suddenly in four months we we've done what we did in ten years. Uh, people didn't realise that the central banks would go all the way, and clearly. You know, I lived in in Japan during their deflationary days, and and we were having all sorts of interesting debates. And finally, the Bank of Japan turned, and it's every major country was ready to print their way to um, to hell. Um, I I I so 
I, I think the financial markets are incredibly um, well. That there isn't so much of a valuation underpinning to any of them. Um, mm. I completely understand why one would. I mean, I've been a fan of gold, um, just for the record. Um, you know, when you look through alternatives, it, it sort of came up, especially with the the, the response in, in the Western world to the crisis was was print print more incredible, and and it will carry on. So, do you think do you think people really understand? I mean, this is going to sound like a broad sweeping question. Do you think people really understand money? Because I'm not sure they do, and I'm not sure even people in finance necessarily understand it. Well, I, I think you're right. Um, most people haven't really thought about it, but I think they've been thinking about it a lot more since mm. the GFC. So pre just cl- clearly the crypto market is reflecting new thinking about money. Yeah, yeah. So I think you know if we'd done this podcast in two thousand and six seven, um, even talking about like the Austrian school of thought etc would have been very alien and um I, I remember having surreal conversations like with a, a zen i had a conversation with a zen monk friend of mine who um he was polish and he seemed to have a better grasp of what money was than most of my friends in the financial sector like he'd really thought about it because his his relatives had gone through extreme circumstances um half a century ago and and, and he realized the importance of having something that was tangible and, and portable, whether, whether it was some gold coins or, or, or some diamonds or whatever. And, um, of course, he was a monk, so he sort of had renunciated all of that. Mm-hmm. But he, he, he understood these things. And, and, and I was just amazed that very few people in the industry had really thought about it. But in the last decade with, with Bitcoin, um, a lot more people have been thinking about it, uh, but I guess they're still a minority. Um, so yeah, I mean it's, and and I think as we go further down the road and start to feel the ramifications of this, these policies, and uh, more people will start to 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 reflect on what 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 is money, uh, and that's why I think this gold rally has has got legs. But, I mean, I think would not surprise me at all if it goes up another three four hundred percent. Um, to just kind of pick your number, I, yeah. I mean, I think part of the part of the problem in this is, and and this is something that we're, we're talking a lot about with clients at the moment, is when we get the question, at what point you take profits in gold, is is viewing it in the wrong way because for us, it's not a question of to go back to a kind of science perspective on things. It's not about the gold; it's about the dollar or the pound or the euro. So, so the the, the way I one of the, the the ways I look at it is to say so so no, there's a definition of a kilogram. So there's an SI definition of a kilogram somewhere, which will say it's the um, the the mass of a given volume of a certain type of material kept at a certain high altitude above sea level in a certain laboratory at a certain temperature in northern France. That's the definition of a kilo. What's a dollar? And so when you when you when you start expressing things in terms of dollars, well, what does that mean? The dollar has you know the, the value of a dollar is somewhat amorphous. It hasn't got a, a strict scientific definition. So someone you know, brighter than me once said, if you're trying to, you know, trying to measure uh, the price of gold in dollars, it's like trying to measure a suit using a piece of elastic. All you can do is throw away the elastic tape measure and wait until there's a proper, a proper unit of, 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 you know, of dimensions that can be can be deployed. So it's not about, you know, when when gold gets to two thousand 
$2,500, an ounce. It's more, no, we'll only look to sell our gold when the circumstances that cause us to buy it in the first place have been positively addressed. And that's the global debt crisis. So when, when, when governments and central banks finally appreciate that you cannot solve a debt problem by issuing more debt, then maybe we'll start talking about other things. But until then, you know, gold seems like a fairly, a fairly you know, relatively safe thing to be using as opposed to having a big vault full of, full of cash. I think, yeah, your way of thinking is absolutely spot on and I'm not a, I'm not a gold bug, and, but certainly... But gold, gold is a weird one because it polarises. Gold's a bit like you know, the financial Brexit. You, know, you can't be neutral on it. You can only either, it's like Marmite, you can either, you can either be a passionate advocate or you can hate, hate its guts. But or you, or no you could be Warren business. Buffett and say, say have, one have thing. Have it both ways. Other. Yeah, but, exactly. But, <laughs> but people are allowed to change their minds. That's a sign of a good trader, to be fair. No, 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 no mind changing allowed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you said you didn't like it. You can't have it. Uh, yeah, that would be funny if that was the rule. Um, no, I thought his, his U-turn was was quite significant because um, it's, it, it's not just that it's also getting out of banks and the i mean the first thing that we we, we we you know we were told about through what is it a 13f filing was you know they bailed out on the airlines and you know, oil related stuff you know f- f- closer to the start of the crisis but now now it's out of banks out of banks into gold and it, it if it was just gold in isolation it'd be one thing but the fact that he sold goldman sachs to buy gold that says something altogether more more interesting to me yeah, I mean, the, the the potential future dislocation across the world, uh, uh, geopolitics, financial markets, everything is is just it's, it's mind boggling to me. Do you see? Do you see um, ongoing, you know, in, increasing ongoing tensions with US and China as being inevitable? Or I mean, from what you've said earlier, you suggest you have a sort of glass half full perspective on the world. But looking at geopolitical things, I, I do not feel happy about the outlook between the US and China. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the biggest issue is can we avoid a hot war with these guys? Yeah, um, well, um, well, let me say one thing, first of all, um, that I... I'm positive about the world on a on a sort of a decade, two decade approach because I think we're we're in the midst of reorganising ourselves. But, but the next year is going to be really awful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be really, really tough. I mean, we've, um, I, I mean, I, I speak to a number of futurists behind closed doors around around the world and and a few smart investors, and we've been saying for some time interestingly our dates had always converged but we thought that 2020 to 2025 was going to be the breakdown period in western civilization and and ready for the emergence of you know new new like a new Bretton Woods a new this a new that new systems and we're in the breakdown phase and and in a way bizarrely I walk around London at the moment and it feels like the cut almost feels like the calm before the next storm because well i was over i was over in Covent garden yesterday uh, to to go to a place called lowlander to have lunch with with a friend and i would est- and this is like just before lunchtime on saturday the 15th of august and i would guesstimate and i have no axe to grind here because we don't short sell anything or anything like that but i, I would guesstimate that the football in central london was 10 percent of what it should have been mm. Now, London cannot survive too much longer like that. No, I mean, you've brought up another really interesting big issue in addition to China, which I'll come back to. But um, 
I just wonder what's going to happen to cities for the next, uh, this dislocation period. Um, I don't know if you know the rather entertaining writer, James Altucher. Oh yes, he's uh, he's a he. I've heard him speak actually. He's he's got a he's got a wild mop of hair, not least. Wow. Yeah, yeah, crazy guy, and <laughs> and I love the way he writes. He just like no BS. He just writes from the heart, and uh, yeah. he wrote a, a a blog on LinkedIn just a few days ago saying New York is not going back to normal, and giving all his, you know, he's been um, living in New York for 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 pretty much all his life, and he. He said he's just joined these Facebook groups um, dedicated to leaving New York and people are brainstorming about where they should go. And you, you, you see the same in San Francisco. The inventory data is is shocking. And, and this is something I was thinking about when I left, when I moved my family out of a city in 2015. I was expecting something, some a, a big shakeup. And... Um, I think this phenomenon might might continue. Um, I mean, there's already anecdotal evidence of people exiting exiting out of Dodge in central London and you know, bidding up property in the home counties, which which makes any amount of sense given that you know for the same price as a poxy little boxed up flat in you know somewhere like where Paul and I live, you can buy a mansion a few you know twenty thirty forty miles out. Yeah, I mean, I always used to people used to ask me. Um, almost rhetorically when I gave talks about um, urbanization and everyone would always quote United Nations data that, um, you know, within decades, another 5% or 10% of, of people would, would, would move to big cities. And that was always the future that they, uh, everyone imagined, co-imagined. Um, but I, I was always a bit suspicious of it, given the decentralized nature of our technologies and, mm. And and I personally I love the countryside and cities. Mm. I, I I get so much out of the culture. Yeah, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can have both coexisting quite happily and enjoy both. It, it, exactly, and you know, like my family's out in Ham, Hampshire. It's an hour if you drive to Winchester. It's less than an hour into into central London, into Waterloo, and you you can. You, you can enjoy the calmness. I mean, during COVID, it was am amazingly calm and, and, and a very nice place to be. And but you can jump on a on a train for an hour and, and meet people in central London. So I think a lot of people are going to be making those trade-offs, particularly when we have the next bout of um, what can I call it? Political unrest, which I think the epicenter will be the US. But do you think? Do you think Trump? Do you think Trump will get re-elected later this year? Well, I'll give you my caveat. So I predicted that the last time around, about twelve months in advance, he was going to going to win at, at a big conference in in Hong Kong. Um, this time around, I think it's a little bit more difficult. The, the, I mean, if you use some people's black boxes, then they'd say because the economy is so bad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that. The, the chances of him winning are significantly more diminished. So my 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 prediction is it, 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 I'm not as confident in my bet um, as last time. I think he can still marginally win. Mm. I, I think his base has probably been incensed by um, what happened with all the violence uh, recently um, and the fact that the Democrats don't really have any... Um, any alter, anything anything constructive really to say 
It is. It is somewhat disillusioning, isn't it, that that someone within a, a hair's breadth of, of the presidency could be a basically a sex pest with dementia. It's not a great outlook. Not a great outlook for the the free world. Yeah, I mean, you've got a guy with dementia fighting in a a reality TV stuff. <laughs> they, well, actually, it should be a celebrity cage fight, shouldn't it? If we if we made the presidential, you know, the debates a cage fight, then that would that would that, I, I'd tune in for that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's probably the best way to to deal with it i mean it's it's incredible i mean it's a it's a sad metaphor for what's happening to the the epicenter of the 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 global economy and and all the rest of it the epicenter of the west um but um yeah i mean i think um yeah well let me add to that comment although i think he can he can potentially win i think there's also uh, if you were if you were a futurist or strategist doing scenarios for for the upcoming election, you'd have to include scenarios um, where the result was not ex- um, accepted and and it goes to the Supreme Court. Um, I think that's one scenario. And of course, you can have other extreme scenarios that you you'd be stupid not to include if if that was what you were paid to be doing, um, which would include. Um, look at you know, I, I say this with a bit of a heavy heart, but I mean, if you look at history, and you look at where we are in terms of wealth disparities, the cultural wars that are happening in the U.S., etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, we're we're living in potentially revolutionary times. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, I, I think what's going to happen is going to be quite dramatic, and and I think you, you, you've had a taste. With the Black Lives Matter and Antifa and 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 all that, you you've seen a little bit of a taste for what could happen. But I I think when when activists took over Central Seattle recently, that's just a, an aperitif for what is in the pipeline. So I would expect a lot of um, civil unrest in in the run up to the election and probably after. So we we could be in a total stalemate. Uh, for a period of time. Um, you, you, you're uh, talking about big change and what ways could you, our listeners, other people, protect themselves from it or even benefit from it? Suicide. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Yeah, no, <laughs> that one. It's, it tends to be an irrevocable uh, decision and I, like any good uh, investor, I like the ability. <laughs> let, let, let's take that one off the table. Um, I... You know, whilst it, it can it can sound dark, some of the scenarios that I paint shorter term, I, I do think we're we are also living in quite exciting times. And we're a resilient species. We are, and 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 I think it's also really good to go back and read biographies of people that have lived through periods of war, massive dislocation, and suddenly you realise that despite all of that. There were people that got through major dislocations and actually had some fun along the way. Mm. Um, that it wasn't all, you know, in the 1940s, terrible things happened, but people did have some joy along the way. And and I think, um, I think, reading biographies. I mean, read like Churchill said, it, um, the further you look back, the further you can look forward. And I think that's a good adage for any investor fund manager or household decision maker but 
Um, I, when I've dipped into biographies in the past, it's always given me a bit of confidence. Um, but I, I think resilience is a word I've always I like ecological terms because I think as a species, we're going to become more ecological, you know, with our advanced technologies, of course, but they're kind of ecological in a way in the sense of being decentralized. And resilience is another ecological term that I like. And and I think I've been, I've been telling clients and uh, for the last few years that uh, to, to cultivate resilience. So there's the inner resilience, which I think is one of the most important because I mean, you jokingly spoke about suicide, but people are people can get very depressed when change happens in a short space of time. You know, the the, the late futurist uh, Alvin Toffler spoke about the concept of future shock, which is where, you know, when I was a young man, I jumped on a plane and went to Japan and I got culture shock. Um, you can have the same phenomenon in your own country when the future comes at you very quickly. And um, I think um, we're going to have waves and waves of, of future shock. So having that inner resilience is great. Um, and in a, in, there's all sorts of things you can do for inner resilience, um, meditation being one of them, but lots of other things. Ray Dalio has been a big proponent, of course, of, of the, the power of, of meditation. Um, reading some of the works of uh, the Buddhist works or the works of the Stoics, uh, if you want a a European influence. Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius is my vote. Yeah, yeah. He's wrote some great uh, uh, things in his contemplations. Um, So inner resilience to me is one of the most important things one can do, especially for a fund manager as well, when you're dealing with um, what's happening. Um, I think the second thing is community, investing in community, um, because, you know, if the proverbial hits the fan, knowing your neighbors is a fairly good idea um, and, and building up those networks and tribes, um, sharing intelligence, but also sharing some food could, is useful. I do think we, we might have some bouts of food crises. I mean, the United Nations has said we're in the worst food crisis for 50 years. I don't think it really has shown up in the supermarkets yet. Um, so there's that form of resilience. And um, um, on the investment side, I, I think um, hedging one's portfolio with with gold is critical. And I'm also a fan of Bitcoin. Mm. I, I think it has this first mover advantage, um, like many of us, uh, in the investment community, when we think, you know, if, if if the proverbial hits the fan, we think, well, gold's been around a long time. Well, the the the, the blockchain equivalent is Bitcoin, and you know there are cases to be made that this will be sort of the the de facto currency of the of the future. Um, it's funny. I mean, I saw another article written by a, a friend just a few days ago, going round and round in circles. Um, which we've all done at times trying to pontificate on, you know, what will be the next reserve currency of the world. And he couldn't really come up with an answer because China doesn't have a convertible currency. And, um, you know, the Japan is in a demographic decline, clearly not going to be the the UK. The euro has got so many problems of its own. Where's the emerging currency? So... um, I, I, you know, if I think of a Star Trek civilization, 
um, the kind of conversations I have with other futurists and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, we feel that Bitcoin is uh, could easily be part of the future. And at least, you know, it has been around 10 years and it, it, it has gone through a, a, a few uh, crashes and, and survived. But we, we didn't talk about China. I don't know whether you want mm. me to address Yeah, please, please do have a go. Go dive in. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a very, uh, I mean, obviously we could sit down and spend a whole podcast talking about China or China and US, but I would direct your um, listeners to um, one thinker on the topic I think has been very good. Um, And I know him personally, met him at the World Economic Forum last year, and I'm actually going to moderate a panel with him on on it, is um, Kishore Mabubani, who was... uh, uh, an influential geopolitical thinker under Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. Uh, and of course, Singapore has got an amazing track record at being quite astute when it comes to, to geopolitical affairs. And he, he was also president of the United Nations uh, Security Council. And um, he's, uh, he, I think he wrote an editorial in The Economist a few months ago. Um, but um, it, he uh, he believes we're moving into this multipolar world, which I tend to to concur with. Um, but he also thinks that the U.S. hasn't been incredibly smart in taking China on, mm. uh, and and I think the way Trump has, um, you know, it's easy to hate Trump, but but when you look at some of his actions, some of them are actually quite uh, astute. I mean, I like the fact that he's taken on the opioid crisis. Uh, for example, which is uh, a big silent killer, probably killing more people than COVID-19. Um, but um, I think we uh, Trump Trump didn't really do a good job in rallying the West together to take on China. Um, and um, it will come to a head. I mean, Mabubani reckoned it was inevitable that things will get worse um, before they get better. And it, it relentlessly goes from bad to worse. You, you know, you had the U.S. closing by force a, a, a Chinese consulate, um, you know, of the second largest economy in the world. Um, I mean, that that was almost unthinkable. Uh, now they're forcing a sale of of TikTok, um, and and th- Trump's threatening banning uh, WeChat. And, and I think this will probably carry on. I mean, um, Eric Schmidt, um, b- before he left Google, said um, he wrote in a book um, actually about the potential for the fragmentation of the internet or the splinternet. I-, I think we might be left with two two internets. Um, um, uh, but b- before, you know, I, th- I think ultimately we'll turn a corner and things will get better. But for the time being, um, the internet's going to be increasingly divided. I think supply chains, um, we're in a very messy situation, you know, where Apple produces a hell of a lot of its production in greater China and at the same time sold, what, a third of its phones in, into, into China. So as the geopolitical um, Cold War uh, 2.0, let's say, c- continues, there's going to be a lot of fallout to um Western companies in, in trying to figure out new supply chains, uh, new sources of, of revenue. Um, so yeah, I think it gets worse before it gets better. Um, 
I, yeah, I mean, do, do you have any other questions or thoughts about China? Because, I mean, we, I could just keep talking. Please do. Please do. Um, I mean, I would also say that China isn't only a force uh, of, of, I don't even know what word to use, but a lot of people are negative on China mm. um, at the moment. Uh, and in 2007, um, in fact, up until just a couple of years ago, uh, most people were sort of foaming at the mouth about China. Um, I remember one reason I moved from Tokyo to Hong Kong back in 05 was I wanted a little bit of a change. I'd been living in Japan and... and probably, probably fancy some Chinese food. Wanted some Chinese food. And, and, I, and, you know, it was just... People had only just started to wake up to the significance of China joining the, the WTO. And I thought, well... What a fantastic place to 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 have front row seats of, of China China's ascendance. Um, but what one thing that worried me, um, and so the, the, here here are my sort of pro China credentials. You know, I, I welcomed China into uh, into the global economy. I realised that they'd moved away from communism. Um, you know, with a gang of four in the 1980s and we're moving to, to a more capitalistic uh, economy. Um, so I was pro-China in one sense, but I was thinking that, that the West was making a little bit of a mistake throwing all of its eggs in, into one basket. And I just couldn't believe the pace at which we were shifting our resources and, and factories into China. And it just seemed a bit dangerous to me. And... Um, um, I don't know if you know the book, The Trap. Did, did you ever read that by no. um, Goldsmith, Sir James Goldsmith? No. He, um, he was obviously a very wealthy entrepreneur, British entrepreneur, and he was against all the trade agreements like GATT, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he wrote in The Trap um, that the, if the West wanted to sell widgets to Asian countries, by all means, set up a factory in China or wherever. Um, but for God's sake, let's not move our in, entire resources over to these countries because it, it, it might not, in the long term, it might not be good for them. And it certainly won't be good for our own social cohesion uh, and, and, and obviously economic cohesion. And, and I remember rereading the book when Trump got elect, elected. It was it was almost he'd forecast what was going to happen to, to middle America and, and chunks of, uh, of the UK. So whilst I was pro-China in a way, um, I just couldn't believe the decisions of Western CEOs in moving all their resources out, out to China. Uh, so I had a slightly more, I think, balanced view. Um, now we've gone full circle and everyone's anti-China. I, I find myself perhaps a little bit more positive on China than, than, than some people. Um, I recognize that when she, President Xi took over, they did move to, to a, a more authoritarian bent. But I think people that have actually been on the ground in China or lived, lived in China, um, it, 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 you, you kind of have remarkable moments where you find that maybe so outside the political realm, let's say, you, you find that you have more free speech in Beijing at times than you do in certain uh, circumstances in, in the West, which are being afflicted by political correctness. 
and it, and it was in fact my my reading of Chinese history that has made me um, particularly frightened about the period of history we're in, mm. uh, because you know this cancellation culture and these witch hunts that you see on social media, um, and it's not just on social media, is it? If you say the wrong thing, um, and it's taken in uh, in the wrong context, um, and people, of course, aren't allowed to make mistakes anymore, um, it can inter- it can ruin people's careers. Um, and anyway, it just reminded me of reading these books about the Cultural Revolution, um, uh, and and as a kind of an interesting metaphor. The, the most popular science fiction book uh, in China, it's, uh, I'm reading it at the moment, called The Three-Body Problem by Liu mm. Kaixin. It, it starts off in the Cultural Revolution and moves towards China becoming this um, technological superpower. So the, this book recognizes that the Cultural Revolu- Revolution was madness and it was part of the Chinese history. And I... So she aside, I, I, I see the West um, has been moving more towards uh, socialism and maybe even communistic thinking. Uh, and China has been moving more towards, towards uh, capitalism. Um, now, um, I, I want to just draw straight line and say this is where things are going to end up. Um, and certainly on a shorter term time frame, um, people I speak to in in China do do think that she has been more authoritarian, but it's good to 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 look at that bigger perspective. What do you think of the prospects of future of power? And I always think that the the future of technology is, apart from quantum computers, is in the hands of battery power and the the ability to look at alternative fuels. Yeah, I mean, batteries are really important. Um, renewable energy, um, getting these grids right. Um, I also like to believe, um, and I, 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 if if you look at history, this would be a time where s- something that. Um, some groundbreaking technology will emerge that's not part of the current paradigm. So it's not part of hydro or or um, solar or a, any any of the above. I mean, these are actually quite old technologies, aren't yes, they? Exactly. They've been around for decades and decades. So if if I talk to some technology insiders and 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 actually people that have gone into China and got got really uh, strong links with people over there, they're they're talking about. Um, almost like free energy type of uh, technologies, uh, things that, that Nikola Tesla was working on and uh, quantum tunneling and um, all sorts of um, um, new new technologies. Um, and of course, there's national security interests in, in all of these. So this is why the general public won't be particularly familiar with them. Uh, but that's that would be my, my bet. Anything uh, called a flux capacitor in the pipeline uh i wouldn't rule out anything <laughs> i i i i think that buckminster fuller uh, half a century ago when he wrote uh critical path and of course um for those in the audience that don't don't know who buckminster fuller was he was a sort of a holistic designer very influential on i think he uh, won more patents than any other living human being 
Um, but his way of thinking, his open-minded way of thinking, of course, he was one of the big proponents of, of uh, interdisciplinary thinking. And um, he's been very influential on, on Silicon Valley and, um, and people like Steve Jobs, etc. And uh, in, in his book, um, it's a bit of an encyclopedia, but um, called Critical Path, he, he suggests that there are many energy alternatives for the future, but it's a case of whether corporate interests can monetize them. And, and that's been the, the big barrier. But um, I, I, I would say it's something that we will have to break through much cheaper energy. And, and I think there's a, some inevitability to it. I, I thought your question, actually, when you said power, I thought it was about sort of political, yes. political power. But, yes, I knew yeah. it would sound a bit like that. But yeah, I mean, because I, I think that the next wave of technology will be driven by, it has to be driven by battery technology because you, because what you're describing in this new, uh, you know, Web 3.0 with everything interconnected and et cetera, it, there'll be such a draw on um, the devices that you can't make, you'll make them more efficient, but you're not going to get a big step up until we move away from lithium iron batteries. Um, you know, we went from lead acid to lithium iron and the next step will be something else that can hold a tremendous amount of power in small devices. And, and that's really what's holding back all the devices, uh, all these portable devices. Um, computers have got to be linked to mains power, and that's a big problem. So we need the equivalent of mains power to really free them. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, we're going to have billions and billions of devices flying around, moving around, robots, drones, um, ultimately. So, um, yeah, you either need a clever way to charge them um, or, you know, a, a new technology, which is, like you said before, a lot of this stuff has been around for such a long time. There doesn't seem to be much, it, it's never really talked about, um, but it is, that is where I think the revolution will be in, in power. Um, and that's, that will change everything. I mean, AI is already here and obviously it's still in very early stages, but it still has tremendous limitations as well. It's not the answer to everything. It's just an answer and it's a good answer to certain, to certain questions. But it, it's, not, it's not intelligence as we know it because we don't even understand our own intelligence. So we can't, we can't hand something over to a computer unless we understand that ourselves. And that links into what the singularity is and, and how far away we are from that. And I still think we're much further away from that than, than people predict. Um, what, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea of the singularity um, in California tech circles almost has become a little bit like a religion. Um, and uh, a, a kind of religion, I, I don't really understand the, the sort of the celebration of the replacement of human beings. So it's, uh, I can understand, you know, why you'd want to join some, some religions. Um, but um, it, it, it's a very strange one. I remember talking to the, um, an AI researcher from uh, Stanford, and he said, to, he said to a group of us behind closed doors, he, he said, look, the AI community was quite positive before on the future of humanity, and, and we thought that AI was um, going to support a lot of um, um, overcoming the, a lot of the crises that we face, but now we just think that humans behave so badly. We're we're just we're just excited about designing our successor. So the paradox is that um, 
the apotheosis of mankind is, is that we get to design our replacement. Uh, and that left a whole room of us fairly gobsmacked, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, I, but I don't, I don't buy into it um, for no. multiple, multiple reasons. Um, first of all, I, 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 I would like to add that, you know, I, I am positive about so much of the low-hanging fruit that AI can come in and, and do. So um, best, that, best to say that first, that um, just like electricity was applied to all these different things in the second uh, industrial revolution and uh, raised productivity and efficiency, uh, the application of AI to many, all sorts of tasks um, from um, how you interface with banks, which is a pain in the backside if you haven't noticed when you're on a trying to get through to someone, uh, a human being on on a phone, um, to diagnostics, to education. I mean, it, it, there's so much low-hanging fruit that will make our lives better and actually let the computers do the bureaucracy so that we can escape the Industrial Revolution. Um, I don't believe in the fourth Industrial Revolution, by the way. I, I just think we, we need to throw away the, the term in, industrial. But we, we can humans can stop being cogs in the wheel and, and can get on with the more creative things. And so AI, in, in a way, could, could be one of our paths out of that. And um, so in that sense, I'm quite positive. But I think the problem with some um, technologists and futurists that focus on, on technology is, uh, is the sort of the buying of the Kool-Aid that technology is the answer to absolutely everything. And uh, and this, the notion of the singularity, you know, that AI overtakes the human intelligence. Um, I find it interesting that the books that are written about it are written by engineers that don't know that much um, about human intelligence. And, and, I, and I think this is, for me personally, this is what I do with my, my clients. So in, in, aside from pontificated about future scenarios, I, I actually coach a lot of leaders um, sometimes they're CEOs, sometimes change makers, but I, I coach them on their, um, their personal resilience, but also on cultivating their intelligence. And, and of course, we all think of intelligence in a narrow minded way as, as the intellect. But I, I think, um, our notion of intelligence is starting to broaden and will continue to broaden. Um, and, and, in, and, I think with neuroscience, we're starting to to get the idea that maybe the left and right brain are both useful. But I, I would go a step further and and suggest that there's just many different types of intelligence. So you've got the intellect, um, you, you have um, maybe bodily intelligence, you have um, uh, intuitive intelligence is, is is a big one. You know, in the old in the old days, if you in in financial circles, if you use the word intuition, um, um, people would be horrified. Um, but I, I think people are using the word increasingly and realizing that it, that it is a uh, quite a powerful tool that humankind uh, has. So I, I think as we broaden our notion of what intelligence is, and, and I'd include the imagination as well. Um, yes. Well, Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did a I did a podcast, well, a video cast uh, about a month and a half ago, and it was dedicated to the imagination. And I I said in my opening remarks, Einstein also said, if you want your kids to be smart, uh, read them fairy tales, and if you want them to be really smart, uh, read them a lot of fairy tales. And um, I I I believe so. Although I don't manage money today. Um, I believe that a lot of the work I've done in thinking more creatively over the last few years would make me better at all my past careers that I've I've ever had. And um, I, I, when I think of skills of the future, and a lot of parents ask me when, when I when I um, give talks and or speak to clients, you know, what, what what are the skills of the future, or what should my kids study? I really think the imagination is something we need to take very seriously. Um, if if you like Google search different terms, it was always interesting to me that um, things that are linked directly to money come up quite high. Um, but imagination, like unlike entrepreneurialism or even creativity, imagination is seen as sort of the realm of artists and and uh, people that just don't have any time. Uh, sorry, people have far too much time. Um, but but I think it's going to be increasingly seen as an essential skill of the future. That brings us back to education again, doesn't it? Because that's how we measure our kids' success by giving them set examinations that are kind of a one size fit all and really don't fit into the uh, different spheres of ed- of of um, intelligence that. You know, for example, the IQ test, which is often put forward as a, a measure of intelligence, was actually originally designed to sort of weed out people who were um, in need of of extra help um, in education, not the other way around, not to look for people who are super intelligent. Mm. And, you know, everybody's good at certain things in different ways. There's so many different levels of intelligence. Um, and it's just how just to define it is almost impossible. Um, you know, you might have a good memory or bad memory. You might have a better imagination or worse, worse one. You might be good with computers. You might be bad with computers. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're more or less intelligent. You may have loads of exams, but be absolutely terrible at the financial markets. You might be fantastic with financial markets, and um, not even have a GCSE. It's it's like so. How, society now, um, as you as you said right at the top. You know, we're we're going through this this change, and I think it's a really important one because um, what we're seeing is you can be massively inverted commas successful without going through the traditional educational system, and that will continue. And I, I don't think that this period at all will be looked upon where where people haven't been to school, where kids haven't been to school. I think um, that will give them the opportunity to look outside of the schooling system for ways to become successful, and, and that can only be a positive thing with regard to using their imagination and, and thinking that, that that getting an exam result is not the be-all and end-all of, of your future. It's just one way of measuring you, but that's not the only way. Absolutely, and I, and I, I, I don't concur with you just to be politically correct. Uh, when, when you say everyone's good at, at something, I really... Uh, the more I've studied creativity and worked with people and, and gone back and thought about my own past, um, um, I, I really believe that, that intelligence is just, it, it's, there's so many layers of it. Um, at school, 
uh, as a reference point, I was diagnosed, you know, with everything under the sun, you know, a bit of ADHD um, before they invented the term. I think that they called me hyperactive. They called me dyslexic. And 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 I actually didn't embrace any of the terms. So I never took extra time in exams or anything. And and then I just kind of figured out my own way. Uh, I kind of figured out how my mind worked. And I went from bottom of my class to a straight A student uh, with offers at Oxford and, and all the rest, studied law at King's, King's College London. And what when I started studying creativity, I went back into my past and realized that my I wasn't so good at dealing with the, with minutia when no context was given. So um, and in a way, it was almost like the, the Buddhist thinking. So a Buddhist poet will tell you that the whole universe is in the flower. Uh, and you might think, well, what the hell does that mean? And then he'd say, well, the flower contains the sky, the clouds, the soil, um, everything is in that one phenomenon. And, and it's only if you understand the concentric circles of the ecosystem and context around a phenomenon can you truly understand it. And, and so when I was at school, my mind worked naturally like that. And so when a, a teacher would get really micro with me without giving me any context, I had no idea what he or she was talking about. It, it, it just um, drove me nuts. And then it was actually through financial markets that I realized the importance, like if you look at, a, 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 I mean, not as poetic, of course, as the flower, but look at an individual stock. So could you say that the entire universe is in a stock? Um, you know, it, it, the macroeconomy, the government policy, the what's happening in rainfall in South America might affect a stock. Um, I mean, there's so many phenomena around it that's affecting it. And, and I, I think that we uh, in the modern world um, after the scientific revolution we just started going down the rabbit hole of if we wanted to understand a phenomenon we wanted to understand the component parts so we, we kind of got our microscopes out and looked for smaller and smaller particles and subparticles, um, but we didn't look at the bigger picture uh, and that's why we couldn't understand things and and now Thankfully, science and social sciences are starting to realize the importance of the bigger picture, the context, the interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary thinking is starting to, 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 to become popular. Um, and um, I think that's where education is going to go. And, and so we, the, 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 the period of conformity, which was part of the industrial revolution is ending. And if I was to recommend, um, people on how to educate themselves today, I, I, I would say um, uh, outside the system is a great place. Um, there, there are, um, of course, there are institutions that are embracing change. And if you look at young kids, the F Finland system looks pretty innovative, but, but uh, it's a great period of time to self-educate at the moment. And, and let's face it, in a... Um, I mean, it's quite optimistic, really, to think that in such a short space of time, you can become an expert in so many different fields. Um, and, and, you know, if I wanted to learn about quantum mechanics, I can get taught by a Stanford professor, uh, and it doesn't have to cost that much. Of course, if you want your Harvard MBA, which has basically gone online with COVID, you still have to pay 
extortion amounts perhaps for the brand uh, and going forwards i assume people are going to be more interested in people's abilities rather than just their their brands brilliant tim um i think this is turning into a part one because there's uh, we're just scratching the surface but i, th- <laughs> I, I think um we, we we should probably um given the time go to media picks what do you think why not and, we, and we'd be delighted to have benjamin back and continue the the, the dialogue in a few months time if that if that suits uh benjamin notice i notice if you, benjamin have you written a book or are you in the process of completing a book or is there something about to be published I've been threatening people um, <laughs> with, with that for a long time, and wrote, I've written some, written some chapters in other people's books. It was easier that way because uh, that they gave me a deadline. But um, no, I, I'm um, I, the last couple of months I've been working on my own, um, and um, uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be out this this year. So if if your listeners follow me on my blog at benjaminjbutler.com, when when there's good news on that front, um, they'll they'll get an announcement. But yeah, a, a book is definitely in the pipeline. Perhaps you could come back on when it's ready to go. That would, it would be great to have you on then. Yeah, I um, I think I probably have a few punchy predictions on the back of the book and and some further thoughts on these topics. So that'd be that'd be great. Yes. This is going to be a bestseller. Let's hope so. <laughs> well, Let's if you made so. the prediction, surely it can come true. So. That's right. Yes, yeah, so, well, self predictions are sometimes the most difficult. But um, yes, yes, that's um, where the emotion comes in. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'd be delighted. So I'm going to I'm going to start on the media picks, and it's it's I'm going to have two this this time because one of them is is in the kind of direct response to what Benjamin's been talking about. So my my first media post Benjamin one is a book called Lattice Work, which I first read quite a while ago, but I, I now realise I need to reread. So it's called Lattice Work: The New Investing. By Robert Hagstrom, and essentially, it's it's uh, referencing people like Charlie Munger at Berkshire Hathaway, and also Bill Miller. But it's effectively a bit about making connections between things. It's it's basically just a recommendation of interdisciplinary learning, and I re- I remember definitely enjoying it the first time. So I'll, I'll be interested to, to to go back and reread it. Fantastic. The second thing I'm going to go with is in partly in 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 apology for my my perhaps somewhat glib recommendation of uh, suicide earlier in the show um i caught uh, a show called well it's a film it's a documentary film but it's, it incorporates a lot of stand-up comedy it's called gary gulman the great depression and this was via hbo i think it was on one of the sky uh, one of the sky channels though um and we caught it during the week and i'd never heard of gary gulman but he's an american stand-up comic but he's an american stand-up comic who has also suffered clearly quite seriously from depression and so he incorporates this into his act and you might think that makes for somewhat uncomfortable viewing, but he actually does it. He does it effortlessly. So it's actually a grown-up conversation about uh, it's, it's observational comedy, but it, it incorporates quite a bit about you know mental illness and and about depression. And it's uh, I, I find it, uh, it it let's just say I mean it, it sounds weird to say it, but I find it extremely enjoyable and actually quite encouraging. Brilliant stuff. So Benjamin, what would you've mentioned quite a few books, um, and we're going to have to check those out. But what would be we're going to have to renew our uh, licensing links with Amazon, I think, Paul. Yes. Make yes, sure we're fully up to speed on the on the referrals. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, uh, how many books do I get to recommend? Well, as, many as many as you like. like. Um, well, so I think the Spatial Web by my friend Dan Dan Mapes um, gives you a good grasp of all the these different technologies that are converging to, to make the next version of the, the internet. Um, 
because people in their silos might not get it. Um, you could even be working in virtual reality and not understand what's what's really happening in terms of the big picture. So on the technology side, I'd, I'd recommend that. Um, I would, I think that as you see potentially the decline of, of the American empire and the emergence, not just of China, but as we move into more of a multipolar world, um, I think something geopolitical would be great, like Kishore Mabubani. Uh, and he's written a bunch of books. And one of them is tongue-in-cheek. He wrote, Has China, I think it was, Has China Won, um, was one of the latest books. But I think it's just really important to get a, a grasp of, of China US uh, and not just read what journalists are pumping out. Um, um, so something like that would be really important. In terms of um, cultivating, I think what could be good, very good for the mind would be a timeless classic like the Tao, the Tao De Jing. Uh, I mean, it was one of my biggest sort of manuscripts in teaching creativity, emphasizing the, the importance of space so the 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 most as it says in the Tao, the most important part of the cup uh, it isn't the container, it's the space inside. And um, um, I think that would be very useful to uh, to the listeners. So, uh, sorry, the the Tao, what was how do you print, spell the, the the second part of that? Uh, the the Tao De Jing, um, it's now spelt with a T. Okay. Uh, so T A O Tao T E. And then Ching, C H I N G. Great. Okay. And a, a, a Chinese classic written allegedly by Lao Tzu 2,500 years ago. And um, really is just an amazing treaty on, um, on, on the mind, on flow, on how to really how to behave in, in times of change. Because essentially, you know, the, the, the Taoists and, and the students of Zen believe that the whole world is always in, in a period of change, that the external world is always changing. Um, so what can you, what can you do in that, an ever-changing world? Well, perhaps there's something changeless within us, not, not even to get religious, but perhaps there's something changeless within us that we can, we can hook onto in a, an ever-changing world. You know, the Chinese, um, you know, they've become the greatest, the largest economy in the world, like th three times. Um, they've had some of the bloodiest wars in human history. Some of the, like, if you look at the worst 20 conflicts of human history, they, they've had a, a good chunk of them. But they're used to a lot of change. And, and it's funny, their national, the, the oldest book, which predates the, the um, Tao Te Ching, is the I Ching. So, um, um, and it's translated as the book of change. So, you know, even if your readers aren't enamored by the current political leadership of, of China under Xi Jinping, I, th I think there's some great philosophy that can help you navigate uh, chaos and change. Thank you very much for those. Just before you go, how do people get in touch with you? I, I think the best way is um, benjaminjbutler.com. And I, um, if I, if I'm on other videos, podcasts, conferences, whatever, I do try and repost everything on my blog there. So um, that's the place to go. And you're on Twitter, are you? I'm not that. I'm not that active in 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 tweeting. Mm -hmm. uh, I I use it actually as a technology to read 
other people's thinking, but maybe I'll become more active. Um, I'm probably going to become more active again on LinkedIn, actually. Um, so feel, feel free to find, I mean, I am on all the major so, social media, so you can look me up on Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, even Instagram. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good luck with the book. We really look forward to reading it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, we enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, uh, gentlemen. Look forward to the next one. To infinity and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks, Benjamin. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.